This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. In the last year, China has cracked down on its largest tech companies and wiped out more than a trillion dollars in market value. Some investors around the world, and in the West in particular, are asking if China is still even investable. Can they afford to invest in China and Chinese companies, or is the future just too uncertain? Today, we're going to be talking about this subject with two Chinese nationals who are lawyers, partners at Quinn Emanuel. Xiao Lu is co-manager of the Shanghai office and has now opened up an, a Beijing office for the firm. Xiao is a Chinese lawyer, graduated from Beijing University, has a Harvard education, was trained as a United States litigator. He has built a unique practice focusing on representing China-based companies and individuals in litigation and government enforcement actions in the United States and advising multinational companies in internal investigations and enforcement matters relating to anti-corruption and other compliance matters in Asia. Haiyang Tang is the co-managing partner of Quinn Emanuel's Shanghai office. Her practice focuses on advising multinational companies in their global government enforcement, investigation, and compliance matters, and advising China-based companies in sensitive cross-border litigation and arbitration. Haiyang has a PhD in neuroscience from Yale and worked in Silicon Valley as an IP litigator for a few years before she moved back to China. She has served as the managing director and chief legal and compliance officer at one of Asia's largest and most active healthcare dedicated private equity firms. Xiao and Haiyang, greetings, and thank you for joining us on Law Disrupted today. Hi, John. Happy to be here. Hi, John. Thank you for the introduction. We're very much interested in hearing your perspective on this view that's been expressed that China may not be investable now. There's some basis for investors to have some concerns about investing in China, particularly in the tech center. Do you agree with that or not agree with that? I'll first take a crack at this. And, uh, and obviously, Haiyan would correct me and, and uh, offer more wisdom. Uh, but I think there's a way of rationalizing and breaking down all these uh, abrupt seeming actions, including both legislative actions and also administrative or enforcement actions into a few categories. And if you actually break them down, you'll see that they are, I would argue, they're actually quite consistent with the global trend. And uh, once you identify where they are coming from, I still argue that China is very much uh, investable. And particularly the, the actions you just mentioned, most of them happened in 2021, uh, can be broken into two buckets, I'd say. One is regarding data security and particularly uh, the protection of uh, individuals' personal information. And the other is on the antitrust side, sort of curbing on the market or uh, conceived uh, or perceived uh, market dominance of technic uh, internet tech giants in China. Uh, I'll first address the, 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 the first category. It actually has been a series uh, of actions by the Chinese government trying to tighten up data security. This did not happen in 2021. It actually started uh, in at least uh, by the latest 2017 when China had the cybersecurity law. Um, 
I think one feature of the Chinese legislative efforts is that uh, the Chinese authorities move very swift. There would be some consultation prior to certain new uh, major legislations coming out, but then it is implemented. And when it's promulgated, it often has only a couple months uh, before the new law would uh, go fully into action. So that certainly is quite different from how we perceive, uh, for example, the US legislation to move forward. Uh, and that certainly sometimes gives people a sense of uneasiness or something some, so big could happen so quickly. Uh, but there are a lot of consistent trends in China's actions on data security. In terms of the legislative process, is there is there an open process where people know that there's consideration being given to changes in the laws relating to data security and the opportunity for the industry to know, industries to know that this is coming and to comment on it and to be heard? Because it does seem that these changes, or at least the way it's reported in the in the West, which may I understand may or may not be accurate, it seems that these things are announced and implemented rather abruptly and that people don't seem seem to have anticipated that it was coming. Sure, Zhang. So not all of these uh, legislative efforts uh, are fully debated before they're promulgated. Some of them certainly came as a big surprise for uh, companies affected in the sort of companies in the affected industry. Uh, that that's certainly true. There are certain bigger picture trends that the government would have been discussing for a while. And uh, certain particular pieces of legislation are in fact debated or uh, the, the government would often, the legislatures would uh, circulate a draft and solicit uh, what we call societal so comments sort of comments from the market. Everyone is free to submit their, uh, their comments and raise their concerns regarding an impending legislation and a lot of them are actually incorporated. So sometimes you see big differences uh, in the law that gets published from their initial drafts, and a lot of them reflecting comments from uh, the industry, the affected industries, from scholars, and and sometimes even uh, law firms. We Queen Emanuel actually participates in some of these efforts uh, in raising concerns on behalf of our clients, and also just from the perspectives we have as legal practitioners working in China. Uh, but sometimes, especially the enforcement actions can certainly be a surprise. Uh, I recall actually, just to use a parallel, I recall the FCPA uh, was, was promulgated and has been in effect for many decades before the first major enforcement action was taken under the FCPA. And when I mean, that's that a, happened- that's in the, You mean in the US, the Foreign Corrupt Practices yes, the US Foreign in the Corrupt US. Practice, Exactly. I recall uh, not long after I started practicing the law, uh, people were all saying, well, who could have imagined that this decades-old statute could have been used to, to by the federal government to go so heavily or so strongly against international businesses? A lot of companies were caught in surprise, uh, even though uh, I, I suppose so the law has been on the books for, for a very long time. And sometimes it, I, it's similar in China. So the government has been stating that, for example, protection of individuals' personal information is a primary concern for the government, especially uh, in the world where personal information can be so easily collected and distributed, sometimes even without 
the the individual's own uh, acknowledgement or or knowledge. I mean, so their uh, the the laws when they came, they came rather quickly. In two thousand seventeen, yeah. there was more general data security cybersecurity law, and then boom, boom, boom. Last year in June, there was the mm -hmm. uh, the the data security law, which is a major piece of legislation, which in some other countries would have taken several years or a decade to develop. And then a couple of months after that, uh, you have the new personal information protection law. So all very major pieces of legislation setting out a lot of obligations for companies that collect, store, process, and transfer uh, data. Uh, and some of these laws, when they are promulgated, they are pretty general. And then mm -hmm. after a couple of months, such as data security law, when it was just published, uh, basically, it imposes a, a requirement for any company that processes such data to get a governmental approval before transferring data outside of China. But then we were not even aware which government authority is supposed to be approving these requests. And then obviously, after a couple of months now, there have been regulations or interpretations of the law being rolled out by the respective mm -hmm. government authorities now uh, giving a lot more clarity to how the process would actually work. And when you actually look at how the process works, it's sort of reasonable, or at least as not as abrupt and draconian as people would have imagined, given how broadly the, the legislations themselves were, were drafted. You thought that there was a consistency to these uh, new laws and enforcement actions relating to data security. Yes. Uh, so uh, like I mentioned, starting at, by the latest 2017, uh, there was the first piece of legislation, the mm -hmm. cybersecurity law. It sets out a lot of goals and put people on alert, I'd say, that uh, there would be stricter uh, data security concerns. And, and it actually uh, articulated the two particular concerns by the government. One is the protection of individual privacy, personal information, and the other is more, I'd argue, sort of national security or cybersecurity side where there's going to be some control on transferring data outside of China or just storing data outside of China. Can you set up a local server in China so that the data would stay in China? And uh, what's the mechanism uh, and scope of transferring data outside of China? And those are all very real questions now under the, the new uh, regulatory regime. So there, I would argue there is a consistent trend in tightening up uh, data security regulations, but obviously uh, some of the uh, the more administrative or enforcement side of actions, John, you just mentioned, uh, certainly came did came uh, did come as a surprise to to all of us, including the companies that were affected. There's no denying that, and uh, you are operating in uh, an, a heavily regulated area, and you are getting massive amount of personal data. Uh, which is a necessity for their business to be able to run. And there may be, there will be tighter restrictions and there's going to be a price that companies will have to pay in gradually or sort of abruptly adapting to the new standards that are set by the government uh, and, and then be able to operate in the more regulated, uh, more streamlined market. So a lot of these, I'd say, we sort of, well, when I say we as so practitioners in, in, in China, in the Chinese market, we've experienced a transformation where the government uh, very quickly and very ambitiously sets up standards 
uh, on how a new era of market should be run with the massive amount of personal data being collected and transmitted. Uh, and that all happened so quickly within sometimes a couple of months, a couple of years, uh, which in some other country would have been, you would have experienced a decade long process of gradually building the roadblocks or the, 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 the blocks for, uh, for the system. And that's why there's this abruptness that people are experiencing mm -hmm. and, and a very big price that companies are paying. But also look at Google and, and, and uh, uh, Microsoft, all of these companies, they pay a hefty price, sometimes in the terms of fines, sometimes in the terms of cost for compliance, for complying with GDPR, for complying with California's local consumer data protection laws. And, and those are not entirely different from what the Chinese tech giants are experiencing now. Yeah, I, I would add that some of the internet companies that we know that they're really diligent. Since 2017, they started to to work on data security related compliance issues. Let's remember that most of these companies are international companies. So they also need to be complying with GDPR, et cetera. So they are hiring new people with data expertise, not only trying to be compliant with the China side, the cybersecurity, but also the GDPR and the US side of the laws. Um, but uh, yes, the, the recent passing of the law is exceptionally quick and the enforcement action is quite quick. I, mean, I have the impression, and um, you'll correct me if, if it's a misimpression, that it's customary in China, or it's frequently the case, the law, the initial law and regulation on a subject will, will be published or enacted in a much more general form than you would see in the West, which with the result that the regulators and the enforcement agencies have a greater amount of discretion in deciding how they're actually going to implement it in practice. Would, would you say that that's a, a, a fair generalization or not? I, I'd say, John, that's a fair description for the initial periods when the law is published. Uh, certainly, just like you articulated, a lot of these laws, when they first came out, practitioners like me would look at the law and say, well, how are they going to implement it? Uh, this is so broad. Uh, for example, like a, a, a good example would be what we just discussed. The data security law requires uh, that any data before they are transmitted outside of China, if, and if it is for the purpose of being used by a, to be presented to a foreign either enforcement agency or judicial uh, agency have to be approved by the Chinese authority, uh, by the relevant Chinese authorities. First, the law doesn't say which Chinese authorities, who are we supposed to ask? And second, can we imagine sort of any Chinese companies participating in a foreign judicial procedure? Uh, setting, setting aside the companies that are investigated by foreign enforcement agencies, that's a different matter. But at any moment, a lot of our clients, Chinese companies or our opponents, uh, they are Chinese companies, they are uh, engaging in discovery uh, with the opposing side in uh, in front of a U.S. court, uh, and not just federal court, but also state court or any other so European courts, they have to present evidence. Obviously, sometimes they are obligated by the other side during discovery to turn over documents they do not want to turn over. But 
on a lot of uh, occasions, they want to be able to present evidence to support their case. And would that also fall under this provision? Literally, it might. Uh, you are presenting information, you're transferring data outside of China to be seen by a foreign judicial agency, uh, authority. Uh, and are you supposed to be asking the Chinese authority for their blessing every time when you turn over a document? Uh, and so when the law just came out, it's that broad. And then quickly, obviously, uh, the uh, administrative agencies that are responsible for carrying out uh, the laws, supervisory or, or administrative functions, uh, step in and after collecting a lot of market feedback, issue a systematic uh, uh, guideline or regulation, which really is a sort of a companion piece to the law. Uh, where they would articulate how exactly the law would be applied. Here's the procedure, who needs to apply, who doesn't need to apply. And obviously, for example, as we understand now, the focus is not on restricting uh, Chinese companies' abilities to present evidence uh, in the foreign proceeding. If you are willing to do that, fine. It's more sort of curbing foreign authorities' overreaching in getting evidence from China without sort of respecting the Chinese authorities' judicial sovereigns over the territory of China. And they are supposed to go through the formal channels of judicial assistance. That's what the law really does. And, and there's a set procedure for resolving those requests so that the Chinese companies who are cooperating with, for example, a, a foreign judicial or uh, uh, an investigative authority would be able to do that under this mechanism. Um, so I, I think it's very interesting, John, the way you describe it there is sometimes this vacuum right after a law has been published and people are scratching their heads, but then quickly there would be more uh, systematic and, and reasonable uh, guidelines or, or regulations on how actually the, the law would be applied. So the law first sets the rules and, and sometimes more general rules, but also more importantly, sets out a framework uh, in which more specific rules will be filled in. So I want to add that I agree with uh, John's description. Sometimes the Chinese government authorities have like uh, discretions in how they enforce the law. So we, we find that it's really important for a good communicator that can communicate with the Chinese government relevant authorities about the foreign requirement, you know, some of the companies would face both the China authority investigations and the US authority investigation and how to bridge that kind of communication. Some of the Chinese agency, when the law just passed, they are trying to figure out how to enforce it. The communication will be the key. Well, as it relates then to data security, I mean, would you say that the rules now have been developed to a point that there is the clarity uncertainty that didn't exist before or no? I mean, where is this something that's still evolving or have a lot of the blanks now been filled in? Uh, it's both, John. I think it's always evolving. Uh, and uh, But but a lot of the major blanks have been filled in uh, with the regulations coming out from, for example, the CAC, the Cybersecurity Administration, uh, and uh, uh, the Market Regulatory uh, Commission. Uh, so now, for example, how, what types of data need to be stored in China. Uh, there's pretty clear uh, guidance on that and how a company can uh, transfer uh, data that, that's necessary for its daily operations outside of China. There's more clarity to that. Actually, Zhang, so uh, Haiyan and I, we are preparing 
a, an, an, a client alert uh, introducing the new framework under the various major pieces of legislation on data security in China with the more companion pieces coming in uh, in past couple of months uh, for our clients. Uh, and you should see that coming pretty soon. We'll look forward to that. So you, you said that there were these issues should be analyzed in two buckets. On the one hand, data security. And I think the other you said was competition or what we might in the US call antitrust. Yes, um, so last year, there are a lot of anti-competition investigations as well. In 2020, there were uh, 109 monopoly cases with 70 million. China is not the only country taking such actions. So a, a lot of commentators actually find that, you know, there's a record level of investment flooding into China's sector to smaller tech companies, startups. Five years ago, most of China's market are dominant by these internet companies, but there's more appetite to startups. One might argue because of the anti-monopoly uh, enforcement that encouraged more competition in China. So because China is not only country taking such actions in, in the United States, as we know, there's Amazon, Google have big fines, EU issued a series of multi-billion dollar fines against major internet companies as well. Um, so people even argue that China is doing it more quickly and effectively. Uh, that's why people suddenly see surge, such a surge of antitrust enforcement. But overall, it's good for the smaller tech companies. The, the companies that you just described are mostly commercial internet companies, but now China is pulling more money to the like the core tech, so-called core technology companies such as biotech, uh, AI, and uh, semiconductor industry, et cetera, startup companies. I mean, it is certainly true, as you say, Hyung, that the large tech companies in the US are getting a lot of attention now from antitrust enforcers, uh, both in the EU and in the US. A lot of commentary about whether big tech in the US is just too big, even whether Facebook should be broken up and the like. So we're seeing these kinds of concerns definitely being expressed in the West. Are you saying that what we see in China, at least as it relates to anti-competition and antitrust enforcement is not dissimilar from what we're seeing in the West? Yeah, we, we think it's consistent with the global trend. In the long run, we don't think these internet commercial companies would be more regulated and meanwhile there'll be more opportunities for technology companies startups that's also because they're represented by the data like uh, last year there was a record level of investment flooding into china tech sector there's more than 129 billion last year well uh, has the approach in china towards foreign investment changed at all? Is it, it, does the Chinese government invite foreign investment? Has it changed the rules or has that aspect of, of the public policy changed in any respect? So I'd say that China's attitude toward welcoming foreign investment, it certainly has not really changed. But in fact, I, I think the, the, the position for attracting foreign investment has even enhanced. 
and, and especially despite the rather abrupt enforcement actions we have seen uh, culminating in 2021, John, the, the list you just articulated at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, and then first I note those are Chinese companies, but then uh, regarding foreign investment, last year there actually have been concrete steps taken to boost uh, uh, the, the attraction of foreign investment. For example, in uh, last May, the Ministry of Commerce actually released a plan to revise their foreign investment guidelines, which basically provides the guideline for what types of foreign investment would be subject to what types of scrutiny and uh, limitation in China. And a lot of those limitations are actually uh, eliminated. Uh, there used to be very long terms on a lockup period for foreign investment, and now that has been shortened uh, for foreign shareholders. Uh, there, there are other uh, restrictions that, that are removed. So certainly investing in China is, is particularly in certain uh, categories of industries uh, have become easier. And also physically, China have built quite a few new development zones, very much like the initial ones in Shenzhen, which has promoted Shenzhen to be in an internationally developed city, great for, for investment. Now in Hainan, the, uh, the southernmost island province of China, uh, there's a new uh, economy development zone in Shanghai and, and a new one being built in Beijing. Actually, Zhang, let me make a, take this opportunity to make a clarification. We are building our office in Beijing. We have not fully built our representative office in Beijing. Okay. We do not have a license yet. We're working on it. Uh, actually, one of the, the <laughs> things we considered is to build it in the new Beijing uh, economy development zone. Uh, that would give us further tax benefits uh, once we actually have the representative office. And I understand a lot of law firms and uh, consulting and audit firms are considering uh, sometimes even with their pre-existing Beijing office to build another one in the new Beijing economy area to take advantage of the more favorable local policies there. Um, so in Beijing, Shanghai, Hainan, and, and uh, different sets of policies uh, that would benefit different kinds of businesses. Uh, so a lot of opportunities and, uh, and it's quite interesting to see sort of these economy zones even competing amongst themselves, uh, trying to have the most attractive or beneficial uh, or most targeted beneficial uh, treatments for uh, foreign investment. Yeah, I would add that uh, in Shanghai, I was actually invited by the Pudong New Area Government. They hosted this big meeting announcing housing an international financial asset transaction platform, you know, manage cross-border capital flows amounting to 1 trillion yuan in three to five years. And also they are really trying to attract foreign investment and foreign law firms and service provider to move to Pudong and provide lots of tax benefit and all the other services. What advice would you give to a non-Chinese company that's looking at investing in China or growing its investment and has these concerns that we've been talking about based upon the recent actions taken against large Chinese tech companies. What advice would you give them about any trepidation they might have and how they can invest and prosper in, in China successfully? 
there higher regulatory risk, the heightened requirement for compliance in, in China now. So it's really important, no matter you are investor or a company, you have a more sophisticated understanding of the new, new laws and new regulations and also develop a compliance program to be comply with these policies. For example, for investors, it's critically important to do in addition to the general legal due diligence, commercial due diligence, you should build the compliance due diligence in the due diligence process. We are actually invited by some of the investors to, they used to be only have the other DD, but now they have not only the compliance due diligence, but they also add the element that after acquisition, they would ask us to help the portfolio companies to build up the compliance program. Um, these are really good practice. Yeah, I'll also add from the data security perspective, foreign investors uh, either sort of directly investing in China to establish their own operations or investing in a Chinese company really need to think hard about how their businesses would get data. Uh, it's inevitable now in, in, in today's economy to get access to massive amount of data, whichever industry you're in, education, not just internet, education, manufacturing, all sorts of uh, uh, data that you have to collect yourself or use or purchase and acquire and, and then use for your daily operations. Uh, companies really need to carefully look at those and think about what kind of data do we access every day for our uh, operations in, in, in China or for our portfolio companies? How do we get it? Is the way that we are getting the data uh, aligned with China's legislative and, and administrative uh, framework? And uh, there, there are the right ways of getting data, storing data and transferring data. There are risky ways of doing those. For example, uh, Shanghai recently established a data transfer, a data exchange. So that whole exchange is dedicated to facilitating companies uh, trade on the data they have. So for example, it, it was very interesting. And an example of those transactions that happened on the first day was that a, a major Chinese commercial bank acquired a full set of data from a electricity company that provides electricity to all the manufacturers in the particular province. Why would the commercial bank wants to get their hands on which companies are getting what amount of electricity at what time to identify companies that are expanding their operations and potentially need commercial loans. That kind of data always existed and were utilized before, but now there is a official exchange for companies to have their data certified for compliance with Chinese law and then uh, evaluate it on the pricing and then uh, execute this transaction so that the company that actually gets the data would be ensured that they are fully, uh, they have full possession for uh, of the data for the purported use and it is fully compliant with Chinese laws and regulations. I'm not saying every set of data has to be uh, acquired through an official exchange like that. But think about the data that we normally collect and use without even uh, thinking about the legal implications. Now it's really a, a major area uh, of compliance concern that companies have to focus on. Well, just to wrap up, my takeaway from this is that, yes, laws have changed in China relating to how data is handled and how it's protected and where it's stored. And yes, laws have changed relating to 
anti-monopoly and pro-competition rules, but they're not all that different, the similar than what's gone on in the West, where you see a similar concern about data and privacy and the, and the power of big tech companies. There has been, as a result of enforcement actions and uh, promulgation of regulations, uh, greater certainty and clarity in and therefore predictability in China on the application and enforcement of these rules. Is that a fair summary? Yes, it's important for the company to establish a good compliance program. To use a COVID-19 um, example, it's like just as like the testing kits, vaccines and medicines are vital to counter COVID-19. A company can use a compliance program to detect, prevent, and manage compliance risk by taking appropriate protective measures. Well, thank you. We've been talking with Xiao Lu and Haiyang Tang, partners at Quinn Emanuel based in Shanghai. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Podcast Partners.